time to <laughs> say goodbye. I see no ma vleduto vesuto con te. Adesso si livro con te. Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. Um, it is the 10th of April, Sunday. You'll be hearing this on Tuesday. Uh, we have quite a bit to talk about, even though it's just about one subject today. But um, I want to introduce my co-host, Andy and Tammy. <laughs> How's it going? It's What's so up? formal. Hi. Know, we're really professionalizing yeah. this thing. Um, yeah, how are you guys doing? Good. I have this sore throat. I apologize to everyone. I feel like I'm taking a shit into your ears right now. He doesn't have coronavirus. Very visual. Yeah, I did. I took negative tests, um, but even if I had yeah, it, you can't. Negative. You can't get it over a podcast anyway. So yeah, <laughs> I know. Well, when you came on, when you signed on, and you're like, "No, I swear to God, I don't have it." I was like, "Andy, I'm not really that worried." That you're gonna have it like, that's not the. That's not, I, know, I just that's want the stigma. My, I don't want the. It's not my concern. Letter. We're like 3,500 miles away from one. You know? It would be crazy if you could. Get, but if it was through these people, frequency waves, though, through the I know podcast. coronavirus travels through oh the sand cat. Or, uh, sound system and through Riverside, all these like at, you know podcast podcast servers. You know that'd be funny. It'd be like uh, it seems like um, only podcasters have have had this disease. Um, New technology. Tammy, how's New York? I'm okay. Um, to be honest, I there's been a lot of loss in people's lives around me recently. So I went to a memorial service today, and I also uh, saw a friend who lost somebody close. So yeah. Grown up I'm shit, sorry. you know. Yeah, yeah. So I'm um, feeling very uh, introspective. Today. Well, we have good news, which is that That's Andy true. won an award. Woo, right. Andy! Thank you, um, Andy. What's this award you won? Yeah, uh, it's called the Business History Conference. Uh, called the Ralph Gomery Prize. It's basically an economic history prize. And uh, you know, I said, I told Jane Tammy, like. I kind of want to say a few things. I don't want to do a victory lap. I don't want to like pretend like this is some. It's okay. You can do a amazing. It's a big lap. deal. You worked ten it's, years well, on it's that It's super book. fun, but it's also. I guess what I want to talk about though was like, um. So this is like an economic history prize, and I think anyone who's listened to like one episode of this podcast knows, like, in my academic work, I just like, and at this point, there's no hiding it because I've done this podcast for two years. It's like. <laughs> Most of my stuff Remember is Remember when Andy was trying to hide his identity? Yeah. Like, Andy, <laughs> this isn't going to work. That but was anyway, pretty funny. Okay. Andy was like, oh, yeah, my name's Andy Liu, and I'm a historian of China, but I don't want to right, yeah. say what school I work at. Yeah, I know. Like, yeah, at this point, I'm, like, fuck, giving dude. business cards to my students. Right? There's, like, quite literally this, like, <laughs> I, I, like I don't give a shit. 0.5 seconds. What are we talking about here? Yeah. Anyway, sorry um, okay, to interrupt. so yeah, no, so, but, so like I don't know. I think it's interesting that you know my book is like super Marxist. Like <laughs> it is every chapter I talk about, like some passage from Volume One or Three of Capital, and but I think this I don't know. This, uh, this might be relatable for you guys as as writers or just like anyone who's like has this feeling of like, are your politics gonna gonna fuck you over at some point? You know, since I for the last decade plus, I had spent a lot of sleepless nights thinking, wondering if I was doing. You know, committing professional suicide mm. by trying to write a history book that was Marxist, but not just, you know, there's Marxism in the academy, as we talked about, but it's in basically non-economic fields. It's very good stuff, like in geography and literature and so on, but economics economics, and economic history are deeply hostile to this stuff traditionally. 
Um, so I don't know. It's just like so to get a prize for business history is incredibly. It was really surprising. It's not labor history. It's like the, literally the history of capital, not the history of labor. Um, and uh, I don't know. It's, it's a sort of like a validation. I wonder if you all had like your own experience in terms of, you know, I remember at one point I was reading this book about writing, and it was it was going you know for academics. It was talking about you know there's schools in academia, and you might be worried that if you belong to one school, other people will disagree with you or something. And you might be tempted to like hide what you're saying. And it, hmm. this passage really spoke to me because I said, don't hide it. It's going to make your writing worse. If you try to like do these mirror tricks and say two or three things at once, just be very clear about what you're saying. The other side might disagree with you, but they'll respect what you said. And that's the best thing. That's the best way to go about these things. And that kind All of, right. that kind of stuck with me. And I feel like, um, you know, hopefully like I, I do, I feel better about kind of kind of doing that and and the other, i mean the other thing i would say is like you know i think there's a possibility that you know within the academy beyond the academy there's been this talk of embracing being more open to marxism or political economy yeah i hope this is a sign of that um you know like this book is not there and, and i guess the last thing i would say is like um in a way it's almost more gratifying because it doesn't feel like i'm preaching to the choir and you know that's, i feel like that's something we talk about in the show a lot is like well the point is not just to like talk to some insular corner of the political spectrum right is to kind of broaden and open this stuff up and kind of show people that this isn't scary stuff um and that and and as if you have like a leftist perspective you shouldn't like shame someone just because they are slightly to the right of you you know um so i don't know and didn't you say that other people who won the prize are sort of podcast adjacent which means that there's a kind of broad recognition of this sort of strain of thought. yeah so you know i thought it'd be worth mentioning some of our podcast guests may and i has won a big prize gabe Bonan has won a prize um one of our favorite episodes the korean wig episode was from a classmate jason petrullis he won a prize for that article about the korean wigs um so you know the stuff is like about, pol- about political economy it's about labor yeah. So yeah, I, so what you're saying is that the radical Marxists have taken over the academy. You know, we're <laughs> and like, they're all on this podcast. <laughs> yeah, exactly. This podcast is like, Jordan Peterson yeah. is right. You know, <laughs> he was. He's like, well, I can't actually do a Jordan yeah. Peterson impression. Please also, don't. I don't want to antagonize his fans again. <laughs> yeah. But um, yeah. again, yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, look, that was not. I actually don't feel bad. Like, I don't feel like they were being. They're they're not really being fair to me. Um, I don't know. I mean, for to answer your question, Andy, no, I don't think that it is really that much of a deal in our field, although I do think that it at, in certain places probably would be. But I don't know. Tammy and I have never won. Tammy, I don't want to speak for you. <laughs> I have never won a prize. You, know? <laughs> but you guys have like you have not been shunned. You know, you've like you've, I've never won an award. But you've made um, you've made you've been able to like speak to broad audiences and. Yeah, I mean, do you, you know, ever feel like you have to like you have to like hide your leftist beliefs for fear of mm-hmm. alienating the right centrist well, rightist? No. But Not Jay, really. that's because we're in magazine and opinion world, right? Like if we were in newspaper world, we would, couldn't do what we do. Uh, you mean if we were? Yeah, but that's different because then you, it doesn't necessarily even have to really like you shouldn't. You know, in some ways, like from a journalistic standpoint, I do believe in these types of annoying and precious things. But you know, like you shouldn't you should try to not have your personal politics influence what you're reporting if you're doing an investigation or something like that, right? Of course, yeah. But I get my point is that I think at this point, you and I are, and people like us are basically counted out of traditional newspaper jobs. 
because mm. we do a kind of journalism that is inflected by our beliefs and is pretty straightforward about those beliefs. But magazine writing and opinion writing is sort of yeah, it's a little carve different. out from those standards of object, quote unquote, objectivity, which we know is somewhat mythical. But this idea of putting your opinions out. It's, it's um, an interesting question. I don't know. I mean, I don't I don't I don't really give too much thought into how the reader readership of the stuff that I do is thinking about my personal politics all that much. Um, or I guess the I, I always think that they can get it like or but I also don't I don't know it's I don't I don't think it's as big of an issue in our field because I don't think that it the majority of people who work in journalism are reporters you know and so the majority of people have all sorts of political beliefs right and that um you probably know them at this point, but you only really know them because of social media. If it wasn't for social media, you would not really know the political uh, background mm -hmm. of a lot of people who work at uh, these big newspapers. I don't think at least at least I didn't, you know, like I couldn't tell. And so um, I think that because there is this idea that within that field, within journalism, there is a sense that you do put all this aside to do for, to just report the facts. Right, ma'am. I think is that the just the facts, ma'am. Um, Sorry, just fact. That's the, that's a saying, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, you're the newspaper journalist. Well, look, I don't know, man. I have like a. This is when like me being an immigrant always comes out like, on idioms, where I'm just like, I actually don't know any of these idioms. But like, um, I think it's a little bit easier, honestly. I because... But I think there are many journalisms, and I think that I I I personally believe I know for a fact actually that I would not be hired at. A mainstream newspaper now as an on the news side because i've crossed i crossed the rubicon into the opinion and that, and that was like a there was a moment where that happened yeah i mean i i, I think i wasn't that helpful about it at the time but it's clear that that is yeah. has disqualified me from having a traditional reporting job but in magazine world it's a little different but i guess the analogy isn't so much alienating your readers but alienating your bosses yes exactly right. the institution right. and kind of mm. the way that you right because that's what i'm worried about i'm not like right. people young people our generation i think would be yeah and i this. think that it's that the is older generation a, yeah i think that i mean when i have conversations with younger journalists i mean i do say that that you should be careful about opinion writing early on because that you know because the news opinion divide is very strong in traditional newspapers, et cetera, et cetera. But right. I, but to your point, I mean, I think like, remember when we had Mel Flashman on the literary agent and who's Dave Graber's uh, RIP agent. And she was saying that there was a moment where every single book, like you could never talk about capitalism in a book. And then all of a sudden every single book had to have capitalism <laughs> in it or to win and sell. I know, like I, I do think we are in this moment, right. Where you have an Adam twos profile on the cover right. of New York mag. And, you know, right. so it is a happy time for people doing scholarship like you, I think. Yeah, yeah. hopefully I didn't want to make it a, a victory lap as such, but I did kind of feel like if I were younger, I'd like to hear a story of someone yeah, who had a bunch sweet. of self doubt. Uh, and then, you know, feels. I remember getting advice early on from uh, a mentor, actually, an ex debater who became an academic that was saying, you know, if you write something that you don't really believe in and you don't get, you know, the job or the prize or whatever, you'll feel doubly shitty, shitty about yourself because right, you, you compromise on your own. I think that the number of, like, my theory on this has always been that the number of people who actually do compromise um, and, like, sort of purposefully suppress things is very low. You know, I don't think it's very high. Like, I think that hmm. in, like I said, in reporting fields, I think the people 
do it because they should, right? And like that's part of the job. And if they didn't, then we would have a much more impoverished news mm -hmm. uh, world, I think. Um, and then, uh, but I don't think that I just don't I don't know anyone who does that personally. And I know I don't know between Tammy and me, we know a lot of people in media. I don't know anyone who is like, oh well, I wish I could go more X, you know. Um, the only people who say that are people who say stuff like, oh, well, I'm somewhat red pilled on this issue and I wish I could say <laughs> it. And I believe that that's true. Right. Uh -huh. But those people aren't actually like the thing that I've noticed is that those people aren't actually they wouldn't be writing that type of piece anyway. You know, like there are people who like write like long magazine profiles or something like that. And they're like, oh, well, <laughs> what I really wish I could do is I could wish I could weigh a 900 word opinion piece or a 1400 word opinion piece on why like this campus campus controversy is stupid you know and i'm like what have you ever written like a 1400 word opinion piece you know like this is not, not something that you, you do, do. <laughs> if you did it all the time i guarantee you would have written that piece you know <laughs> and so like this is not to say that yeah. some people are not i do actually think that some there is like some chilling effect right? it would be crazy to say there's no chilling effect and for people in media on those specific topics mm -hmm. and yet i don't know i just try i don't feel like i do it like i just you know, I don't know how many freaking things have I written that could be classified as being like, quote, anti-woke or something like that. There's a lot, you know, and like, I don't know, like I just I don't I don't think of myself as being an anti-woke person. But, you know, like my job now is to write 1400 to 2000 words twice a week. And so, of course, I'm going to express whatever opinion that I have. And if those if people who had that job where their job was to offer their opinion about stuff, they would offer their opinion. That's all. That's all I'm saying. Right. Right? Well, you they also would. report stuff, Jay. Like, I, I think like your opinion stuff and my opinion stuff, like they're more like news analysis or features sometimes because they right. do contain a lot of interviews. But there are certainly there is a class of journalism where you basically spout off and you show yourself. Right. And that's, right. <laughs> you know, I mean, some of those people are very good at doing that. Sure. You know? But that's, yeah, that's right. like it's a, a little tradition different. I'm less right. interested in, I think. Yeah. I, I will say, so I think there is a kind of like left wing or Marxist reporting that where sometimes are like the ideology, the ideology can interfere right. with the facts. For so, sure. so for instance, like I, and I'll say this self-critically also, like when I do labor reporting and when I see colleagues who do labor reporting, I think sometimes there can be a tendency for us to really shy away from union critiques right. or from cr deep critiques right. of the left. And, you, you know, and sometimes then it turns out to be kind of like a raw, raw sort of tidy narrative around labor, right. which just isn't really true. It isn't the whole story. But, you know, you're also so appreciative of like how hard it is to make any of this work that you end up doing a thing that's like, oh, SEIU is really great. And it's, you know, and so I think that is maybe like a danger in which your, oh, yeah. your political orientation can get the better of you. And that happens a lot and not just labor, but, you know, kind of social justice reporting. Yeah, undeniably true, Tammy. I think that's true. I mean, are I those think. the, are with the editors of, at that point, I, I mean, the editors for those articles are the same editors as for everything else in the paper, right? So they just, no. they're just like, you're, you're doing your labor thing now. It depends. And, I mean, it's just, I think I mean, it depends. No, like there's not one editor, you know, but I don't know. I mean, I, I don't, I kind of think some of this stuff is over or over. I think people freak out a little bit too much about it. I do think that there's some types. About I think bias, that, you mean? About yeah, like, okay, the, now, let's say that you have your average 26-year-old graduate of elite college X, right, Who grew and this person grew up in, went to elite private school, 
and is, uh, you know, very, is young. Uh-huh. Now, they will default towards listening to activists in a way that an older reporter wouldn't, right? Like they would sort of, they would say, okay, that's true. the most important thing is X. Now, that's true, but that's not necessarily like a new thing, right? Like that's just somebody being young and somewhat inexperienced, but also, and also like in a, way, a lot of ways, intimidated by the activist, right? Because if they agree with the general sense of what <laughs> the activist is saying, yeah. right? Like, for example, like, oh, I don't know, like... uh you know, sometimes police can be pretty racist or something like that, like like some sort of broad sentiment that like a young person will almost invariably, who went to one of these elite institutions will almost invariably agree with. Then the activist is somebody who they don't want to make angry, right? Now, is that accelerated by a world in which the person, the activist can hop on social media and just absolutely blow up this person's spot a little bit, you know, but I don't think too much, right? And so I, I think that that's the one space where it is like that. But here's the thing. It's like there are not really that many young journalists at a lot of these big newspapers. There are some, you know, those people generally, I think, do trend more towards the center. Right. Because like uh, and maybe they feel some pressure to do so. I don't know. I don't. I was like 30 when I became a journalist. So I have no idea what it's like being a journalist in their 20s. But um I think that's the only place where I would say that that happened. And the, the place that I saw that the most was at Vice, you know, when I was working on a television show, which is very different, you know, like a news TV show for, especially for Vice is going to definitely side much more with a type of sort of activist type of uh, idea because they're trying to make television that's exciting, right? right? Like they're not trying to make necessarily like a type of journalistic product that is, you know, supposed to be the paper of record or whatever. They're trying to make something exciting. And so, you want to get in good with the activist because the activist is going to be your central character. You need to convince this person to be on camera, right? Which is sometimes difficult. And, you know, you probably as a young person feel very swept up in the emotions of what's happening. You see a bunch of people protesting, right? And uh, in the end, like, you will have something that probably could be classified sometimes as being biased. It's like just part of what you do, you know? But um, I don't know. I'm... I'm not as alarmed about this in journalism, I think, as a lot of people are. You think other people are? Yeah, I wouldn't say it's a big problem. Yeah, I don't think it's because most journalists are basically leftists anyway. No, No, actually, they're not. No, 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 no. no. (laughs) But I think it's I think it's Jay's thing that there is like there are disciplinary constraints actually that kind of correct people's inclinations. Right, Tammy's example of labor reporting is really perfect. Right. Um, you probably should not just say all the unions are great, you know, as a reporter, you really shouldn't, um, there have long history of bad stuff happening in unions. Right. (laughs) And, um, if your impulse is to cover that up, then I don't know, you know, like it's not, you're not really doing your job. And I think that most of the people who are very serious about their work, and there's a lot of people I think who cover labor, who have very leftist opinions, who do a great job and are not afraid to 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 tell that other side and so it doesn't necessarily mean that it will always interfere but for some people it probably does interfere that i don't know it's at not, least subconsciously i think right. you know it's not yeah but i think the other part is and i don't know if you feel this in academia andy but it's like in journalism i think there's also for people who do social justice reporting it's like you see that the other side the the moneyed side they always get a lot. You know, they yeah. always get the good publicity. And so you also have an instinct to sort of overcorrect for that. So right, right. you're kind of both fighting your 
professional, you want to fulfill your professional duties, but you also see this societal imbalance. Yeah, Um, for sure. And hopefully in academia, they're starting to address this and say like, okay, economics and many, and the quantitative methods in a lot of these fields have been dominant, but also there's another way to do quant. Yeah. It doesn't have to be just a quant for power. It can be a quant for the subaltern or whatever, you know? Yeah. In academia, it seems to be a much bigger problem too, just because if you, like I'm talking about like sort of incentivizing a certain type of political you mm, yeah. generally mm-hmm. i mean i mean you look at i mean outside you know the people who generally win a lot of awards and fellowships and stuff like that i don't know you know it's been people who are involved in social justice type of stuff now that might i'm not saying that's good or bad i'm just saying that that seems to be true you know now it's not true in economic history i imagine right. or economic yeah but that's the one field that everyone brings up that, that it's not true in, you know <laughs> I mean, it is true in yeah. like a lot of the humanities, the humanities. fields. Yeah. And so I don't know, like, I, I, I think it's different. Like journalism is a job, you know, in the end. And the job has constraints. <laughs> Academia is also can, a job, though. Yeah. But, yeah. But not in the same sort of way, I don't think. Yeah. It's like basically you're. Because uh, we don't have tenure. Yeah, we don't have yeah. tenure. <laughs> Most of us don't have health we're not, insurance. <laughs> we're not molding young minds, you know, like there's nothing. We're not? like, there's, no, there's nothing that's like uh, sort of implicitly political, but at the same time, it's not like academia where I feel like, look, there is like, you can say whatever you want, but there are certain fields that have that where it would be very hard to find somebody who is a centrist or even, uh, um, or even, a, especially a Republican, right? I get, no, I'm for not, sure, yeah. Right. And in journalism, that's not true. Right. I mean, okay. like people say that's true and they're like, oh, well, you never find a Trump voter, et cetera, et cetera. It's not really true. You know, if you actually talk to people, a lot of them do have very centrist views. Yeah. And, um, I don't know. I'm sorry. I think that's kind of a good thing. You know, like I don't, I don't think that, I think it's the newsroom should probably reflect what people think in some ways, yeah. you know, and that it shouldn't just all be uh, elite theory leftist or something like that. <laughs> sort of <laughs> like yeah, doing I mean, cosplay of a right, newsroom. Yeah. Right. I mean, yeah. I mean, do you all resonate with this last point I was saying about if you get a reception from someone who would not normally agree with what you're saying, that's almost in a way like more fun than, you know, if it's, you feel like you're just preaching to the choir of a friend or uh, yeah, someone who kind I of don't know. in advance. Damn it, I've never won an award. <laughs> no, I'm not. Have even... you won an award? I, I've won one award. What oh, award you Was it Asian award? We don't need to talk about that. <laughs> was uh, it an Asian no, award? No, it wasn't. Yeah. It was Maybe we should cancel this whole section. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. It was <laughs> not an Asian award. <laughs> <laughs> was it cr- <laughs> Okay. Anyway. Um, I, I've never won an award. Um, I'm not even talking about know. awards. I'm just talking about like, you know, I mean, like debate analogies, like you win over a judge who, you know, doesn't like your argument. Yeah. I mean, I think feel like Jay's stuff is like that because he's trying to, right. he does critique stuff on the left a lot. So yeah. I'm sure, Jay, you get mail from people who have vastly different politics from oh people who essentially God. agree. I don't know if that happens to me my uh, email not, less often. Crazy. Less often. <laughs> yeah. My email is like, I'd say the average person who writes into the email box I have for the newsletter, I don't know how many emails I get a day. Probably like somewhere between like 40 and 150. Do you answer them? I answer a lot of them. Yeah. Wow. A decent percentage of them. That's overwhelming. But the average age I would say is... 65? No higher. You know, like maybe like 70. You know, it's... And then um, I would say the political bent... Because they always tell me. You know, right? Yeah, uh, I was like, how do you know? 
I know. It always starts with like, like I am a 72 year old white conservative living in San Clemente, California, and you know I and really I resonated thoughts. with what you wrote about. You know? like kindred spirits. There's a lot of that. I'm afraid Jay's gonna tip over one of these days because he's getting affirmed too many much by these people. I know, there was a no, little bit a, of a like, you know, that I yeah. I get a lot. I I would say it's like 50 50. Um, which is, you know, interesting given that it is at times, um, and I do write a lot about California, right? So most of the, a lot of people write in are from California, but you know what? They're like, uh, I actually, that's the part of the job that I sort of like the most. That's why I answer so many of the emails because mm-hmm. like people are very thoughtful and honestly, it's like a, nice. it's such a nice respite from Twitter, right? Like I think yeah. at this point I probably have more people who subscribe to the newsletter than I have Twitter followers. Actually, I don't think it's particularly close. And so you get a much broader range of people writing in something thoughtful. And it's way better than Twitter where it's just like somebody with an anime avatar like like screaming at you about, because like they hate your movie taste, you know, and they're like, you're a fascist or something like that. And just like, what? Like we got to like, this is, this is not satisfying for me. It's not satisfying for you. And so, um, Now, do I, is there like some like, oh, I'm winning these people? No, I don't, I don't really think of it that way. Like, I don't think, oh, I'm winning people over. I, I, I don't really, I don't know. I, 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 maybe it's hard to believe, but I really just don't, I don't really have a, I don't feel like I have an agenda or anything, you know, like it's just. Not necessarily an agenda, but just sort of like, almost like it's more like, oh, I did a good job with that because I was able to persuade someone someone who yeah you're reaching wouldn't necessarily agree with me in advance whereas you know you can write a sloppy argument and you preach to the choir and they'll be like yeah sure you know right yeah that is not satisfying i agree yeah that's like yeah you guys are both like debate people so i'm sure that's the (laughs) you know piece where you're like okay that sort of worked on this person right okay let's do tammy about three minutes ago you did a perfect segue that i was going to (laughs) compliment you on but like we, we today, <laughs> today we're going to talk about uh, Amazon and Tammy, you wrote a great article in the New Yorker about this and where you did a lot of reporting and you went down to Staten Island, I believe, and you talked to some of these people who had uh, organized and who had some, some who had decided not to vote for ALU, mm-hmm. right? And there's a lot of questions that came up on it. And first of all, the first one I wanted to ask you was like, there seems to be this question hovering. And I think that um, uh, the labor reporter, Noam Shiver for the uh, Times wrote about this too. And the question is like, okay, like I remember when Bessemer happened, we did an episode in yes. which we talked about, oh, oh God, I am blanking on the person's name. The person who sort of outlines the laws for how to do organizing or the rules. For Jane McAlevey. Jane McAlevey, right? And we said, well, maybe Jane McAlevey is right, you know? And it's interesting because it's been a year or so, right? And now it's now the question is, well, is Jane McAlevey right, right? Because a lot of the rules that she was sort of mm-hmm. making, and I would not say, I was one of the people who thought maybe she was right. So I'm not, you know, like this is me basically saying like, you know, I'm not saying like, oh, you know, I was right back then. I was wrong back then <laughs> if, if this new, if this is a new normal. But I guess my first question is like, do you feel like, you know, how do you feel about it? Like, do you feel like some of the rules are that there's like a new sort of normal that people should be thinking about. Yeah. So Noam Scheiber's piece, if folks didn't see it, that Jay's pointing out is an article, uh, you know, kind of after the election, asking the question of like, what do, how are big labor unions seeing this, established labor unions seeing this? And are they thinking, rethinking like, oh, the stuff that we've been playing by isn't quite right and we need to do more guerrilla tactics sort of thing. And um, so Jane McLevy um, on Bessemer, had, her critique had, was basically based on 
the, is the critique that she always makes, but is based on one of her books called No Shortcuts, in which basically she says you need like fighting unionism, you need like very participatory unionism, you need to have when you're collecting cards, you need to get like 90% of the cards, you know, you have to have one on one meetings with every single worker, this sort of thing. And in Stan- on Staten Island, they didn't do a lot of it. So I've been calling it the some shortcuts election because I'm like, <laughs> well, <laughs> you right, know? like because they got like they got the bare minimum of yeah. signed cards, right? And yeah. that's like a big, big no-no, right? Like, yeah, like and so exactly, like, yeah. And that in in my I once wrote a critique of Jane McAlevey, and my critique was basically like sometimes some shortcuts work, right? <laughs> and so right. I do think in this election it was some cut, shortcuts work. That said, basically the Amazon labor union on Statline did follow the thrust of what she argues, which is you need a fighting union. Like you need a union where people feel seen, where you have workers organizing workers and you don't have a lot of like out, like outside staff unionists coming in to do the organizing. So in the main, they basically, they had the heart of a traditional campaign, but the trappings were not traditional, I would say. Okay. Um, well, that's interesting. I mean, like, okay, so like, it seemed like this was like a huge surprise too, right? Why is it such a huge surprise? Was it because of, uh, you know, like some of the, was it because they had taken so many shortcuts or that they had taken <laughs> shortcuts? Was it because of general indicators that you would use when thinking about things in a, in, in, you know, like thinking about Bessemer, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Where it seemed kind of like, well, Bessemer is probably not going to work because the indica- early indicators are not good, right? And it would also be said that that was maybe true of this, right? Because like they did get the bare minimum of sign cards, et cetera, et cetera. So like what was so surprising? About yeah. This? Well, so so Bessemer right now is going through its own re-election um, based on the legal violations at Amazon. So we'll see how that turns out right now. There's a bunch, hundreds of ballots that are under contest by both sides. So right. they're going to have a hearing on that. So we'll see about Bessemer. But I think Bessemer and Staten Island almost had the exact opposite trajectories where in Bessemer, the sort of at least like people who are paying attention on Twitter and in the news, we all were like, oh, maybe at Bessemer right, they'll win. Right. right. right? Because right, right. <laughs> it, it was like, OK, it's RWDSU, which is part of United Food and Commercial Workers. They have 10,000 members in Alabama, long history there. They have like, you know, they also have outside organization around the country. They can come in and support the union and they seem to have, you know, the density they need and whatever, whatever. Um, and so this is like a fighting chance at an Amazon union as Amazon warehouse finally. And on Staten Island, it was like they started their own union. It's a bunch of guys who are just doing a lot of publicity, which is also a no-no under Jane McAlevey's rules, <laughs> which is that you should um, you shouldn't do like mobilization, like PR campaigns. And it, I mean, I I say in the New Yorker story, like mea culpa, like I also just didn't really take that Staten Island campaign very seriously. Yeah. Like I didn't devote reporting resources to it. I was paying attention to Amazon organizing in other places. I was kind of like, there's no way this is going to work because it seems like three dudes who are doing a lot of media for themselves and there doesn't seem to be a lot of there there. So you, um, so you, you knew about it though before the vote? Like- I knew about it. Yeah. I mean, I'd been following all the steps of it, but a lot of the steps of it seemed to be PR stuff. And But then when they got cards when they got 30 i mean getting 30 percent of cards in a warehouse that size i don't want to underestimate how incredibly difficult that is like we say oh that's the bare minimum and that's a no-no under labor organizing but think about that like think about getting 30 percent of cards in a warehouse with 150 percent turnover that employs over six thousand people i mean that is so fucking hard so, you know, I mean, it's I like deep cards. respect to these people. Yeah. yeah. And and also you don't even know who's working there at any given time. Right, so right, for instance, right. like basically you have to you have to base your card getting on a certain cutoff date and just hope for the best. 
And so that's why they did it twice in October. They didn't quite meet it. And then they continued collecting in December. They finally met it. So anyway, that's all to say, Jay, that um, I think a lot of us didn't take it seriously because we thought the most well-resourced unions and the unions that are most likely to get into a warehouse haven't been able to do this. Right. So why would it be true that a few random dudes would be able to do this? Um, And everyone was wrong. Yeah. I mean, I didn't. I didn't find a single person who wasn't surprised by it, you know, um, and yeah. or anyone who was like, I told you so. Everyone was like, oh, my right. God. <laughs> yeah, like yeah. there wasn't a single person. Seriously. Um, yeah. I mean, props to the few reporters who really have been following it all the way, like especially would shout out like Lauren Carey Gurley at Vice right. and Josefa uh, Vasquez at, um, at the city. But yeah, I would say most of us were kind of like, eh, the campaign exists. Right. But, you know. <clears throat> Who knows? <laughs> so you wrote quite a bit about like why, you know, well, I don't know. I've read a lot about it now and it's like, yeah. there's a lot of ideas on why it worked, you know? And, um, what, what do you, what, what's, what's your main thought? Like if you could give the, the, your top two, you know, Tammy's two. I also just made Tammy a mistake. It was Josefa Velasquez at the city, not Vasquez. Sorry, Josefa Velasquez. Um, my top two. Okay. So one, they built a strong organizing committee. And everyone did their job. And two, they were there every single day. Right. Um, these are the stories of them like at the bus stop. That's what I would say. Them at Wait. the bus stop, around the parking lot, calling people, just yeah. having a steady presence that was recognizable and visible through right. that entire card collection mobilization period. You don't think it was like, you know, because they employed things like TikTok or they, you know, you said that they did sort of employ, you know, they were better at the media or they, they maybe not even better, but they're more aware of different ways to use the media. Do you think that had anything? I to think do that with? helped, but I don't think that would have, I don't think that that would have been at all sufficient had it not been for the physical presence right, at the right. warehouse. Yeah. But, I think it's interesting because it's like, yeah. you know, people can see a TikTok and support it, but like it's different to go. Exactly. To and, and, and also if you're working a 40 hour job and you're commuting six hours every day, you're not spending a ton of time on TikTok. <laughs> Well, maybe right. when you're commuting, though, right? Like that's yeah, you're on the train. Yeah, what are you doing on the train? That's the way. Maybe. it's like it's an efficient maybe. way of communication Dancing. if you don't talk to everyone. Dance videos. <laughs> oh, sure. I mean, they did. Yeah, I mean, they certainly did circulate a lot on Facebook, and people were sending stuff to each other. But I guess I just mean, I think we over. I think we can overestimate sometimes, like how much time people on, spend on these right. things. Like we spend way more time on these. All right, we're, I'm on Twitter all day. So <laughs> yeah, I'm like I watch all the TikTok videos, <laughs> but you know. <laughs> Do you, yeah. do you wonder about, I was, I was, um, I was listening to, like, I was reading all the reporting, I've read your stuff and I was listening to like the Slate Money podcast talk about it also. And it almost seems like, I wonder if there's like a, is there like a, what's the word? Like a, a, a risk or something to be careful of in terms of overly fetishizing the union as like small and like big traditional unions are too big. And they're like clumsy and they didn't work. And it's almost like, cause I was listening to like Slate Money and they're almost talking about it. Like they were glorifying like a startup culture and how it's like oh, nimble yeah. and flexible and these old, these older unions, but like at strategically and Shiper's piece talked on, touched on this, like there's mm-hmm. limits to how much you, how far you can go with that independent union. Right. You're probably more vulnerable, right? If, if they crush, you know, if they can like a company could just target one union as opposed to targeting like the bigger union that you're, that you're part of. And and just more gen- generally, like to be part of a, a labor movement, you would want some sort of coordination between unions and all that, right? 
Yeah, I think that's right. And I, I was trying to not be too sanguine in my piece either. Yeah. Because no, I don't think you were, in, yeah. Oh, no, no. But I, I mean, as incredible as this is, it's like you also have to get a contract. And then you also, and then after you get the contract, you have to enforce that contract. And doing that against a corporation like Amazon, no one's ever done it before. It's going to be murder. I mean, Amazon labor union as small and quote up startup y as it is, it also did draw on big union resources to some extent, right? They had really right. great experienced attorneys who were helping them. They had advice from unions. And I'm not, I don't say that to undermine what they accomplished. I say that to say, like, you also need a machinery behind right. you legally and infrastructurally because Amazon has everything. They own the entire world. And yeah. so, you know, I mean, I do. And I think the other part of that is, I think the lesson from this shouldn't be like, oh, scrappy unions are better than big unions. I don't think that's the lesson. I think the lesson is like fighting unions are better than bureaucratized unions that don't do stuff. What's and the difference also, for the read? Sure. The yeah. So, I mean, I would say that like a fighting union is, for example, like sometimes when you get a big union, it can become just calcified in a way where like they don't think about new innovative things. They're trying to play by like strict rules. They may not do things like, for example, one of the great things that the Amazon labor union did was you know, captive audience meetings where the bosses drag you into a meeting to tell you why unions suck. Whenever they had uh, organizing people, organizing members in there, they would say, they would like yell at the person, right. yell at the boss or the anti-union consultant and say like, that's a lie. These are the salt, and try salt, to, like the Not just the salts, but the people on the organizing oh, okay. committee or just union supporters, they would speak up right, and right. they would, you know, they would wear shirts on the job They that said Amazon labor union. Like they would do things that, you know, if you were a cautious union, a union that was trying to play safe, you wouldn't do a lot of those things. And so I think that's the difference with a fighting union. And I think the second lesson, again, is not this, you know, small versus big. It's it's a lesson that like it isn't one size fits all. Right. That we don't exactly know what's going to work in all these warehouses. And so it's a good thing to try something. Right. I mean, out of curiosity, why would a big union undergo something like this and not fight? If like, why, why waste the time if you're not going to fight? I think I think a lot of big unions do fight and they're incredible and can be extremely democratic. Right. But I think what can happen is, you know, once you once you get big, there's some level of, I guess, like risk aversion that comes into play or um, is sort of, yeah, this thing of like, OK, there are there is a set playbook by which we win. And so we're just going to follow that in every instance. Um from a reporting standpoint, there's something I'll say like, okay, so when I'm reporting with the Teamsters or SEIU or something, a lot of times they don't let you talk to organizers. They don't let you talk to workers except for a few appointed workers. And then even when you talk to them, they babysit you like the PR person sits in the meeting, right. stuff like that. And that's whatever, that's boring stuff from a journalist's perspective. But the reason I raise that is because it also shows, I don't know, not a lack of trust or like a kind of just a worry that you're going to kind of show your colors or, you know, you don't trust the workers to kind of just represent themselves. And in Amazon labor union and other grassroots efforts, you don't have that. You don't right. have like the walls and people feel empowered to just be themselves, to do whatever that feels okay, that they've customized to their workplace. Um, so I think that can be an advantage of a small union. How much do you, okay. So like the, the general narrative right now, I would say is that like, is one it's like almost like a great man narrative around this right um it's chris very Malls. much centered around chris smalls mm -hmm. and um now i have i don't know if it should be or shouldn't be you know like i'm just like i'm not I, this is not something that i reported on and so i'm just taking it mm -hmm. in as like somebody who reads the news um and ha who has like some preformed ideas but this is so surprising that it seems to throw some of these preformed ideas out the <laughs> out the now look labor history yeah. is centered around sometimes very charismatic people right who can convince Completely. people to really make 
uh, to sort of swing votes in ways that are totally unexpected based on the force of their personality and the message that they that they're giving. Mm-hmm. And it seems, you know, like, and so like, what do you think about that? Because, you know, like, I agree with everybody, like, this is an extraordinarily charismatic person, you know, like, mm-hmm. I would, if, like, I would listen to him too, you know? Yeah. <laughs> you could throw um, in with him, yeah. <laughs> right, and that everybody, yeah. uh, is that narrative correct, though? Like, is it, is it really just sort of a lot of it is, might just be that they found a person who is like somewhat exceptional, you know, in this role? Yeah. Did you guys see the Substack by Adam Johnson, the left-wing writer and podcaster? I I believe the title of his post was, it's okay to venerate Chris Small's The Left Needs Leaders. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I did (laughs) see that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think that was exactly what you're getting at here of like, so what what do we think about this from like a left-wing perspective? Because you think about a union, you want to have this very horizontal space where everyone can (laughs) rise up as a leader. But here, but you know, also leaders are important and all unions have elected leadership with like hierarchy. But they also Um, talk about Derek, right? His like uh, Derek. Derek Palmer. Yeah. Those are are the two. yeah. Yeah. So I would say- so my cop-out answer is yes and no. <laughs> so in my story, one thing I tried to do was, so there were four friends, four guys who basically started it. And I tried to give airtime to the other two guys also. I mean, the thing about Chris Smalls that's interesting is he hasn't worked at Amazon for two years, right? He got fired in the spring of 2020, leading the walkouts. And Derek of the four founders basically is the only guy who still works at Amazon. Right. Um, Chris Smalls Andy, is you're, like- you're, you're, you, you unmuted yourself. Yeah. Is that bad? No, on Zoom, you're doubled up now. Oh, you are. Sorry. Yeah. Sorry. Right. Oh, yeah. Got. Got. I'm thinking um, about Yeah, yeah. So uh, anyway, um, yeah. I mean, I think Chris Smalls is an undeniably charismatic and powerful leader, and um, he is the interim president of ALU, meaning they haven't had elections, so he is acting as the president. Um, I generally think it's kind of a cool and good thing that he's getting all this attention. But I do think moving forward, there probably does need to be, they're going to have to figure out like a democratic structure by which they decide who their leaders are. Right. 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 I mean, I, I think it's one of those things where it's just like, just take the win, you know, (laughs) like everyone from NPR to like every news outlet in America outside of like, Fox News is like celebrating this guy, you know. Fox News, even even very no outside of Fox News, even very like centrist (laughs) places like MSNBC or something. Like they're treating him like this, uh, like he's like Cesar Chavez or something. It's just like, just take the win, you know. (laughs) Like it's fine, and even even he has given quotes about like (laughs) I'm not, I don't want to be the face of this, and I'm just a humble, right, right, just yeah, just like just. It's fine, you know. We can be happy. It's fine to watch the videos, <laughs> you know, of him popping champagne and people celebrating. And it's fine to just be happy about it. Now, I will say that generally, I find that you know the left does like make themselves miserable in these moments and like over theorizes everything. <laughs> I actually don't think that happened. You know, I saw like two people do it. You right. know, like I, I it don't was know. just and joy, two, right? and those two people are always like that, you know, like, <laughs> like I would not be con- to name names. Yeah, I would be concerned if they weren't, you right. know, I'd be like, Oh my God, something is very wrong. That person is happy. You know, <laughs> like, what about these are people like that miserable after like Bernie in Nevada, you know, right. and they're just like, well, I don't know. It's just like, right. Oh my God, wow. shut up. Okay. What, what about, like, um, I, that's incredible. I, I didn't, I don't know. I didn't see too much about this, but did you all see like 
people trying to spin this as like a black or POC immigrant. Yeah. Well, I think it should be right. like, it's certainly part of the question. So has, has, that, that, has that framing thing. been there though? Cause I don't know if I've seen uh, too much of it. Not so much, but like, here's the thing that I think, you know, Jamel wrote about it. Um, he, he, he mentioned it and he did not, he said that it was interesting in the sense that like, it was a effort that did try and meet people where they are right yes. now i think that that's generally at least for me and tammy andy i think you're a little bit more um strict about this than tammy and i right like where it's just like listen i don't want to have this conversation about like what is identity politics and what is not identity politics within this one context because it's true the main three the organizers are black you know there's a great uh interview in jacobin where they talked about like an african immigrant right who mm -hmm. um was working yeah. there and like sort of how he helped translate things and how he brought in food right and that this is a warehouse in staten island of course most of the workers are going to be not white right and so like it is interesting it's like well it is a space in which like some of the theory around this stuff disappears right because they're just like okay are you using idpol or are you not using idpol i'm just like come on shut up you know like it's fine you're trying to talk to people in the ways that they want to be talked to some of that is based on identity right and yeah. so i would say that i actually think it's very refreshing that this hasn't been theorized in that sort of way or that people haven't been thinking about right. it in that sort of way because um and that I think on the other end where you would sort of expect a type of sort of triumphalism around like, oh, well, only, you know, like X identity can actually do this, right. et cetera, et cetera. That's not really there either. Right. But because and I think that, you know, the you know, the counterexample would be like, well, why didn't Bessemer work or something like there are other things that you could say to that. But yeah. like, um, I don't know, like I have been quite I, I don't know, maybe I'm just in a good mood these days or something, but I have not been like. I didn't really find any of it annoying, you know, like I just thought that it, except for those two people, you know, but those two people are just annoying. <laughs> now I'm so curious who they are. No, I, they, I, they're not real. <laughs> oh, I see. I see. Yeah. Yeah. I'm just I saying like there's about two, them. they're about I, two I people who I actually who had a guess. Yeah. Were, anyway, okay. um, I mean, I think type I it think in the chat. Any, any, good un, any good union does that though. Like any right, union right, worth of course, salt of needs, course, right? Yeah. I think like, yes, it is, it is maybe, it was maybe more obvious and logical to a smaller independent union that didn't have baggage that they would like go ahead and do that, that they would meet people where they are, they would do it in their languages right. and in their food and all this stuff. But any good union should do that. I mean, but, but yeah, I mean, I think the other part of the identity thing is like black, a lot, a lot of like black people and black people in the labor movement were celebrating that like Chris Smalls, a guy who is like head to toe unapologetically black. Right. right, right, is out there. I think I sent you guys my favorite image from all of this, which is him meeting the new president right. of the Teamster, Sean O'Brien. Right. And he's right. like wearing a do-rag, has sunglasses on, and is like, you know, wearing an right. ALU t-shirt and, and Sean O'Brien's in the Teamster's marble headquarters yeah. wearing a suit, you know, and it's, yeah. it's beautiful. Yeah, it's like, like, and I think workers were like, yeah, these people look like us. They talk like us. They are from our communities and like we can relate to them. Right. But that isn't that an argument against sort of the giant bureaucratic, uh, you know, play something like the Teamsters then like if you are going to I'm not saying I'm not saying not this necessarily writer is yeah. right or wrong, but like, I don't know, like I like even the workplaces, Tammy, I would say that you and I have worked in. Right. Like, at least for me, I would say 
that I feel much more an affinity to the to the people who are, you know, quote unquote, this is, you know, this goes against my general MO, but like, you know, like I, if I'm going to, in the workplace, if I'm going to complain about something that's happening to work, mm-hmm. I, you know, like I just say, it's probably not going to be a white person, you know, <laughs> like almost never <laughs> is it going to be like, I will seek out any, any shade of brown that I can find, you know, and then I'll just complain. I'll just be like, listen, get what, oh what's God. going on with fucking, you know, I don't, I want to, I can't even think of a name that will not be somebody's actual name. Like, <laughs> what's going on with a white over there, you know? And like, that's just, that's just natural, you know, like, and, and um, I don't feel like I need to apologize for it or anything like that. And I think that most people who are like that uh, feel that way. And so, in a place where it's mostly now, look, mm-hmm. the places that I've worked are mostly white. Now, if you work in a place that's mostly uh, people of color, like I did when I was younger, I'd work on like grounds crews and stuff like that, it's like much different because the um, dynamics are like much more racialized in some mm-hmm. sort of like not more racialized, but it's much more specific. You know, you're like, oh, I hate that people from X country or something. <laughs> yeah, like that. yeah. You know? <laughs> but like, what was I? I don't know. What I found cool about that interview that I read in Jacobin, a lot of the stuff that I read in other places was that mm-hmm. it seemed like um, who the people who organized this were cognizant of that, right? And that they sort of did try their best to reach people who might be resistant to this, and then try and talk to them and their language you know and yeah. so that either means like stuff that they will relate to or sometimes it actually means their actual language you know and so i don't know i right. found that all that to be pretty cool and um but i also and think that in, that's your but that's also is... true in all unions right like, right good that's, unions, yeah that's the thing i mean i think you were asking like would this be less likely in a teamsters campaign or what does this mean in a big union right and i so uh I mean, the one thing where like some of this analysis like breaks down is like, sure, okay, so there's this whole thing about like outside union people versus the inside workers, right? But the thing is like any good union, basically they will have staff organizers and support come in, but they should demand that the real organizing committee is workers inside who organize one another. And then at that point, it basically looks like Amazon labor union if you're doing it right. You know, and so, yeah, I mean, basically you should, if Teamsters is trying to do an Amazon warehouse, they should have an organizing committee that does look and sound right. and eat and talk and live like the workers inside. Because it should be the workers right. inside why, who are organizing one another. Why was Small's meeting with Teamsters? Is there a thought of connecting to a bigger union uh, eventually? So, I mean, one of, the, one of the great and funny things is, so they didn't have very much big union support, although RWDSU did help in the early days. And then after that, not so much because they're founding their own union. So in a way, there's some turf issues okay. with that, right? Like Teamsters and UFCW are like, I mean, I can only imagine the conversations that are being had inside of those <laughs> headquarters this week because uh, it's embarrassing. Right. Okay. You know, and I think okay. later on they all were calling and being like, how can we assist right. you? And, you know, and I'm sure they're dreaming also of absorbing right. them. And do you think this but, is my question to you then? Yeah. Right. Look, we can, we can like caveat and contextualize the narrative around here, but the narrative is definitely this startup narrative that Andy mentioned, right? Like this sort of, or even like, um, like an Arab spring, not, you know, like beginning of (laughs) Arab spring type of narrative. No, I'm serious. Like, you know, like, um, and you see that with like Starbucks, for example, that's how Starbucks has been promoted Mm -hmm. on in or not promoted, but that's a story of the Starbucks stuff. It's just like, Hey, one person can do it. You know, this barista stood up, right. (laughs) Or this person was assault and they went and they got their, 
the people that they work with on the morning shift to agree to all of this, right? And that mm-hmm. it feels like what is being promoted right now or being just argued is that this decentralized approach is going to work better, right? And I can think of 500 reasons why that's more appealing to everybody as a narrative. First of all, it allows the individual to have more possibility and more say in it, right? Second is that people just like this narrative, right? Like, oh, we can do it. We can do it. Mm-hmm. All we need is an internet connection and our we all we need is our phones, you know, and we can do it. We just have to talk. And um, the fact that you said that Teamsters were probably like, you know, like somewhat like embarrassed by this, I, it probably feeds into that too, right? Like, you know, like we don't have to get their approval. Like we can do this ourselves. This is about us. I don't know. Like, it, do you think that that's going to be the narrative going forward? Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so one of my, one of my working theories over the last five to 10 years has basically been that there are many more. So, so like 10 or 15 years ago, I think most people in left worker organizing were thinking traditional unions kind of suck. Right. They've never been good for us. They've never cared about our industries or our communities. We're going to try to do different things. So we had immigrant worker centers. We had all these like collectives, different kinds of formations, basically saying traditional unionism, no. And then I think we've had actually a turn towards traditional unionism and collective bargaining because a lot of that stuff wasn't sustainable. And the only thing we've really figured out that kind of works under capitalism is the collective bargaining agreement. And it's very actually very frustrating because it's kind of a stultified format. And yet that's kind of what we have. And so now I think we're in this moment where we're thinking, okay, we, we kind of want that stuff, but we want it in a different way. Like we want radical fighting democratic unions, but we still kind of like the union structure. So I think we might see more things like ALU in the sense that people want to take advantage when the NLRB is good of like certain NLRA things, but they want to do it in like whatever a millennial, right. you know, Gen <laughs> Z way. If we have to put it crudely, you know what I mean? So it's like they want, yeah, they want the TikTok, they want whatever, whatever. But but at the end of the day, they want an enforceable contract too. What about? So I think that's kind of what we might, what we're seeing. It's like a newspaper moving to web and like in the (laughs) The year 2001 or something like that. (laughs) We need to communicate with the kids, you know, but uh, we also have to do our thing. What about Um, um, what ALU... I mean, so, I mean, we should probably talk about the practical, you know, what comes next. But if even if they succeed in getting a contract with Amazon Stan Island, wouldn't that, in theory, also open them up to unionization at all the other warehouses? Because this is only one warehouse so far, right? Yeah, yeah. So something that um, didn't quite make it into my story that I was trying to explore, maybe that maybe I'll return to, is a question of, like, what does it mean strategically around the country? And generally in warehouses, it has been UFCW and the Teamsters that have had the saturation, right? Because Teamsters has UPS, for example. Um, So the next steps concretely are, so at the end of this month, we have the election for the warehouse across the street, the sortation center, which is 1,500 workers. Meanwhile, Amazon has filed objections to the validity of the election that they just lost. Um, And so technically the union ALU's representation of JFK eight isn't officially official, but that, you know, it's with the NLRB. Um, But the next step of getting the contract is like murder. I mean, getting a contract, even in a functional functioning workplace that is much smaller where the bosses aren't as hostile as Amazon can take a year or two sometimes. How long will it take for them to get a contract at Amazon? They're going to, Amazon's just going to try to starve them out. Right. 
it's going to be extremely, extremely challenging. If we get to the point where they do have a contract, something Amazon could try, to your point, legally sometimes uh, bosses will say, the appropriate bargaining unit is not this warehouse. The appropriate bargaining unit is all of the warehouses. Or the appropriate right. bargaining unit is all of the warehouses in the tri-state area. Right. And the reason they do that is because then they can say they don't have majority right. representation, right. right? So there are all these different legal tricks that they're going to try. Um, I think the NLRB right now is like the best NLRB ever. Right. <laughs> so yeah. like you guys saw the general counsel of Brizzo's memo basically saying that she's declaring or, you know, suggesting that captive audience meetings in and of themselves constitute a violation of the NLRB, NLRA. I mean, that's like an incredible step. So we'll see. I mean, I think we're going to have an NLRB at the regional and national levels that actually take workers' concerns seriously. But then that next step of getting a contract and then trying to enforce a contract is... Right, Biden um, even said something, right? Yeah, Biden said something. Yeah, That that was confusing because... Um, what was this? But he also said, he, I mean, he also said about Bessemer too, though. Right. That's right. But, yeah. Right. I mean, everyone thinks he's the most pro union president. But don't you think he's just trying to get votes? You know, like, you know. Yeah, but sure. But that's all politics. I hope he's awakened to the reality that he needs <laughs> There is not. If, yeah, we hope he gets votes, right? Um, if, <laughs> if Amazon tries to starve him for like, you know, years, that is where a bigger union would come in handy, right? Because, ALU would like run out of money, you know, waiting. So I think that's, yeah, that's what's interesting. I mean, they're, they have three lawyers right now. Well, two and a half technically or whatever. And um, none of them are paying. I mean, it's all pro bono work and they're getting lots of donated assistance. So hopefully that'll continue. I think that part, I, know, I, I honestly that, think that part will be okay. Andy, I think the just technical because assistance. I think the, I think the incentives for labor period to have this thing work are way too high for them to not. Pitch in so. over like turf issues and stuff like that. I mean, if this fails, then it's so defeating just because we have so few victories, you know, and um, yeah, like to sort of squander one in this way would sort of prove everyone right about everything. And so I don't know, that would be disappointing. Yeah. And I kind of think it won't be, but I don't know. I've been extremely optimistic this podcast overall, you know, so <laughs> I don't know what's happening. I mean, it me. was a really amazing week. Yeah. I think we all yeah. felt good and it was really nice to feel it good. It was exciting and, to see. And honestly, it was yeah. like I think the surprise part of it was the Yeah. was like the most compelling part and it gives I don't know. Here's another question I have for you, Tammy, which is that like, you know, like what how like this has always been true, right? I'm sure it was true of like I don't know, like the steel industry too or GM or whatever, right? But like what like right now the two big the two biggest and most talked about are um Starbucks and Amazon, mm-hmm. right? And both of these are in pretty nascent stages, regardless of, you know, how exciting they are. Right? Like we can yeah. agree that they're in nascent stages. Right. What effect do you think that it has at like and obviously these two are the most talked about because these are the two biggest two of the biggest brands companies in the world and two mm-hmm. of the most famous companies in the world and so like but there's still a lot of people who need to be unionized who don't work in gigantic brands that are on every yeah. doorstep and so like what i don't know is there some fear or something that this will just sort of become like the big it'll become part of almost like you know like some sort of inverse version of brand marketing or something like that oh funny so you're you're wondering if 
the companies can potentially use it to their advantage? No, no. I'm saying the- like, is there like, I, I am that, like, nice. is there Rare. too much focus on these big, big companies? You gotcha. know, um, right now. You know what? I look. I think. Hmm. Curious what you guys think. I think it's entirely appropriate and long overdue in the sense that. I mean, we have like a monopolistic, monopsonistic economy, and it seems like more and more people basically are working for a few large corporations. Right, right. And, and we haven't, you know, this is kind of the first large scale attempt, like for the Starbucks case, for instance, of trying to figure out like, can a store by store strategy work? in a chain like we haven't really tried like there you know we had five for 15 we had the our walmart campaign but each of those kind of had defects when it came to the unionization part and um or like weren't really aiming for unionization and now the starbucks campaign is kind of trying to do that and the amazon thing is like this long-running question of you know there was a sort of semi amazon union and the call center in the 90s but since then we really haven't had this so um i think it's i think it's good and i think it also shows people who don't work for large corporations actually that this is the hardest case, and so if they're trying it there, right, right, right. all also, the better for us. It's like good to get attention. You know? <laughs> it's good to get attention, yeah. And um, and they're the clearest right. enemies, I mean, like you know. I I, I looked at the statistics. <laughs> Amazon is the number two biggest employer in the U.S. Yeah, and after Walmart. Walmart's number one, and I'm sure mm-hmm. like five years or ten years it'll be Amazon over Walmart. You know, like that's right. This yeah. is emblematic of the U.S. economy. Like it is right. going in this direction. So right. it's not just like a symbol. It is like literally. It's like exactly. Well, yeah, that's right. why like all the Uber stuff is so important in California, right? Like yeah. that's why, because that's where everything's going. And, you know, um, I don't know. And, you know, the number two employer is the number two employer still, right? And Starbucks must be up there. I mean, it's got to be, right? Like, I mean, at least in terms of ge- geographical coverage around the country. I mean, mm-hmm. it's got to be in the world. Like that and McDonald's yeah. in the world, right? So um yeah i don't know uh anything else tammy that you want to talk about from this article you wrote? we'll put it in the show notes everyone should read it um i thought it was very good and i'm glad that you wrote about it um you know and that it was cool and reported and i don't know what was the mood down there were people like happy I guess a lot of people weren't there when you showed up. Yeah, I mean, I, I kind of went the day after to do a story about like, well, what's the feeling and what's the prognosis of people who work there who aren't weren't necessarily involved in the campaign either. And, right. um, you know, I, I guess I will say, I mean, one thing that I think is, you know, obviously on the organizer's mind is just that not everyone did vote for the union. Like thousands of people voted against the union. Yep. And, um, and that was in and potentially a couple thousand people also didn't vote at all. And a lot of people hadn't really heard about these. So I think, you know, there, um, there are this challenge of like constant internal organizing is so important. And I think that's where the kind of like Trotskyist part of this, you know, of organizing like meets the NLRB part where you're like, (laughs) yes, you can, you can take advantage and have structure and yet you still need to constantly organize to make a union meaningful at all. Um, And I think like the ALU has said this also, which is even if we don't win, we will have a solidarity union. And so that like that'll be the wait and see. So our takeaways are fighting unions good and (laughs) everyone should be happy. And uh, pretty much. Yeah. I mean, what what happens? (laughs) What happens? Like, how is this going to be remembered if? Amazon successfully successfully stops it. You know? Yeah. 
I think that's a really good question. I think it'll be remembered as one of our great tries in the history. In, hopefully in 50 years, they'll be like, okay, there were all these attempts. And then finally, right. <laughs> we figured out how to get them, right. you know. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think people like somebody was saying a labor person the other day was saying like, I think in, you know, a friend was saying, I think in 20 years, we're going to look at this or 50 years and we're going to be like, we're going to study like, what were the, what were the strategies of Chris Smalls? Mm-hmm. Like the mm-hmm. way that we're studying, <laughs> we're like, what did Walter Reuter do? Right, you, right, you know, right, so right. I think um, that's interesting and kind of inspiring. And I think it's fun for us to like, imagine that we are making history. Right. You know? Right. We don't right. get to feel that way very often. That's a very uncharacteristically positive end to yeah. our show. Do we yeah. need to do something on Tim no, Ryan? I feel like we should talk about it a little bit. <laughs> to shake oh, out the, the, Tim Ryan, yeah. the good feelings. Okay. Um, okay, so Tim Ryan made a co- campaign ad. Is it a, ca- yeah. a campaign Yeah, it's like a 20-second, 30-second mm-hmm. ad. And he basically just said, like, look, China's the enemy, basically, right? Um, they're taking our jobs, um, and we need to focus on them, which is not an uncharacteristic thing for a politician to say. It seems like that's what everyone is saying, um, you know, from, I don't know, everybody, right? Like focus on China, focus on China. Like, you know, don't focus on Russia, focus on China. You know, <laughs> uh, you know, um, I don't know, Andy, what'd you think? I mean, yeah, so the... The question, I guess, that's within sort of like the part by part partisan bipartisan debate is like, is Tim Ryan correct in trying to appeal to Trump voter, voters, right? Like, this is a Republican talking point. The Democrats need to take it back. Is it? You know, th- I mean, this is definitely part of Trump's. <laughs> it's like Joe Biden. But Biden like, ad, Biden's right, ad, like too. Biden sure. Had a, I thought actually more offensive ad. Sure, know, sure, more- sure. At least xenophobic. Yeah. I guess. I guess. I guess the broader question, the way this could connect to the Amazon, is you know, but this is like this imagined idea of how do we tap into the working, white, the, the yeah, working class, totally. Right. And Tim Ryan's constituency, you know, kind of like Northeast Ohio, you know, like Youngstown area, mm-hmm. right? So you know, which is obviously Trump country, right? Right. And you know, there's been pushback. Um, two groups: Asian American Midwest progressive, progressives. Another group called OPAWL, which is like an Ohio-based Asian American feminist group, they've directly spoken to the Ryan campaign and both and been both been told, "We're not going to back off. This is how we win Republican voters." Yeah. Um, there was a profile of Tim Ryan in the New York Times that was honestly quite positive, except for like one paragraph when they acknowledged this oh, wow. controversial okay. ad. But it was pretty much like, "Is Tim Ryan?" going to do this for the Democrats, is he going to successfully win the Republican voters? It's sort of like one of those bipartisan profiles is like, oh, he's a, he's a, he's a, I see. he thinks different than everyone else because he's actually going to try to win the Republican voters. I don't know. I mean, so there's been a lot of protests in terms of like, the angle has mostly been these ads are bad because it'll stoke anti-Asian racism, right? And I think that's obviously necessary. That's like a necessary thing to say. I do wonder though, like in a way, the, because Tim Ryan himself has kind of covered his butt by saying this isn't racist. I support I think like Grace Mung's bill in, in the in Congress, or I, I support this bill in Congress about mm-hmm. stop Asian hate and all that stuff. What I'm really targeting is not Asian Americans. I'm targeting China, right? Right. But I don't know. I've, and I feel like the activists themselves need to kind of also expand the vocabulary from talking about Asian Americans as the consequence of this ad and to actually address the political economic content of what the ad is saying, right? Which is that 
and, and just say like this is a this is there's a, this is resting on a very like uh, out of touch economic vision that is kind of like you know if Amazon and Walmart are the biggest employers in the United States, Tim Ryan's trying to like trying to turn back get into a time machine. And, re- and change the global economy in a way that's just out of touch, oh, right? Biden said that too in the State of the Union, right? We're going to bring yeah, manufacturing I mean, back. We're going to bring jobs back. We're going to bring industry back to the United States. Yeah, and like, I think a lot of that stuff is like, I mean, some obviously can be done. It'd be great if they built a, you know, fucking Amtrak train, you know, <laughs> do some of that stuff in the U.S. But a lot of it is, I think, and I don't know, I think a lot of it is kind of, a refusal to grapple with the actual like situation in the global economy. And, and to get back to like this broader question, another contrast with Amazon is like, you know, Amazon is like, who is, who is the working class's enemy or bosses, right? It's, it's Amazon for Tim Ryan. It's not the bosses. It's not the companies. It's China. Right. As if like Chinese workers are like calling Americans, right. And like right. bring our jobs over here. You know, like mm-hmm. that is the sort of, I mean, that's, that there is like a, that is the way that these two strategies a sort of like antipathy towards globalization. One can go in one direction, one can go in a less progressive direction. And so I think the contrast is interesting. They're not like, those two groups are not going to, those two groups are advocacy groups for like Asian American people, right? And so their their critique is not going to like- But they say progressive, so you would think it's not just like, you know. Right, right. but I don't know. I mean, I think- I, I think you can make both those critiques at the same time. Yeah, and no, I, I agree. I agree. I'm just saying. And so we ha- we have a tendency um, to kind of frame things as only about Asian Americans, but I also feel like that also kind of leaves the Asian American versus China distinction. Right. right. It's very nasty. Still there. Mm-hmm. Right. right. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, I don't. I mean, I I think it's. I think people are very scared right now, and they're very worried that like whatever they see every day on social media is going to just keep happening you know and that i think that to say that the fear of china is not stoking a lot of this is probably like pretty naive you know like i'm sure right. it is no it is right? i'm sure and so um and that i think that you know and i i don't know like it's just i think that people just don't want to be in this place where like the enemy is them, right? And so I I understand that response a lot, but I I agree with you that like you know like what Tim Ryan is saying it has other problems with it. Um, but I I don't know. It's I I think it's okay for some people to speak to him on that. Yeah, no, for sure. And you know, hopefully he stops running that ad. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it's a it's a crazy it's, ad. I mean, if you've seen it, but like, we can put... it, it. It is interesting because it's just like all right, well. Like it's gonna happen, and it's not like the Democrats are just gonna do this, right? And like it's like a weird. Maybe they won't like because they want some sort of point of differentiation or something like that. Like, but the big bipartisan issue is like anti-China stuff, right? Like it's like that's what they all agree on, right? And it's probably why that anti-Asian hate bill passed with so much. Right. You know, like everybody supported it because they're like, well, if we do this now, we can just go bash China right, right. <laughs> like, and just say there's a difference. Yeah, there's a rhetorical um, strategy there. Right, and, right. Um, I mean, it's one that Tim Ryan used, exactly, right? Right. He's, right. And so um, I don't know. I, I I wish that there was less xenophobia for my own well-being and for well-being of my family. I will say that, you know. Sure. Um, but I do think that we're entering a pretty, like, we just have to, like, be pretty cognizant of what we're entering because like um 
places i think that one thing that tim ryan is probably right about is that like you know like uh in ohio people are struggling economically because there's no jobs industry whatever right and that they all sort of look back to this i mean this is what sam canonis writes about all the time right like the guy that i interviewed like that's mm-hmm. sort of what like the, he, he draws a straight line which i don't know i find somewhat convincing honestly about like uh you know the rise of uh opioid epidemic and the loss of industry right, right? and that um i don't know how you could say that those two things aren't related of course yeah, right, right, right. Right. now are they like as determined and the sort of lyrical way that Canona says, like, I don't know, you know, like that would be like something that I would probably disagree with him about. Right. Like it's not so smooth, but like the two are related. And then like, you just, of course, like there needs to be an enemy at that point. And it's always, you know, it's always going to be China, you know, just like it was always going to be Japan in the motor industry. Right. right? It's always going to be some Asian person (laughs) or Asian country. Right. Right. That's doing it. Right. Like they're not mad at any country in Europe about this stuff ever. Right. right? It's always something. It's always somebody in Asia, or actually just Asia. Right. Over the past 40 years. So yeah. I think this is just a I don't know. I don't I don't think it's new. No, I it's not it's new, but I don't know. I, I, but we need new ways of talking about it, yeah. I think, is something I'm hearing from you. I mean, I'm wondering what you guys think the people to whom this kind of messaging appeals. What do they think the policy end is here? Yeah. Like, what do they exactly. think Tim Ryan is going to wave away? Right. I mean, they have to have something in mind. Are they iPhones thinking like are built in Columbus, Ohio? Type right. Thing, but are know? they thinking that's accomplished through like Trump like tariff strategies? Like, I'm just wondering what they exactly. think the kind of policy mechanism is. I think a lot of people think these things through too much. Yeah. Right. You know, just the just, they they want something, someone to blame. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, China is like the big rising power. And, um, but Jay, you sound fatalistic about it. Well, yeah, I am fatalistic yeah. about it because we live in an extremely racist and violent country. You know? like, like, I don't know what else to say now. Like, is it the most racist? I don't know. It's not the most racist country, but, you know, there's a lot of other racist countries. But, you know, on these types of issues, yeah, they identify, you know, when things go wrong economically, they identify like, an, you know, I don't know. Yeah. It's just basic shit, right? So um, uh, now I, I think that like, and I don't think that there's any other political path for any politician who wants to make these arguments, right? Because they are dealing with like a pretty wrecked population at this point, right? Of people. And um, the squeeze on some of these industries is going to be intense. I mean, I was reading a lot about like uh, the nursing home industry this week and, you know, like the amount of labor that they're going to lose and the quick collapse of some of the stuff that is ha- going to happen right now is why is that it's going to be intense but that because like well because like they don't pay shortage, well enough right. for yeah. you to do that job you right. know that's a hard job like i don't know you know like yeah. jobs are hard but that job is really hard like if you want to be around people who are dying who can't you know a lot of times are having like memory loss or whatever just like dealing with people who have like open sores, people who are, you know, people in skilled nursing facilities are basically at the end of their life. Yeah. And then you have to care for them, you know, like you have to do all, like take care of all their, that's a hard job. You get paid $10 an hour, right? Mm-hmm. you know, now it used to be that you could find people to do that. Right. But like, you're not going to find people to do that anymore. Um, and part of that, I don't know, I read this interesting article, but part of that is just because like, there's so little immigration right now, you know, yeah. um, but that's not all of it, obviously, right? Like that's some of it. And so 
when you're dealing with that, like, I don't know, it like just sort of wrecked industries that are going to become more wrecked over the next five years. I think that right. it's almost inevitable that they're going to blame China about it. I mean, what are they going to do? Blame themselves? Well, <laughs> you know? I mean, I guess this is the point where you would say like, you want to funnel, funnel that towards like a class position, you know, like get them to try to support a Bernie like program, you know, like universal social welfare and all that uh, social welfare. Right. They might, but they would that they might also just say it's still China's like they might do both, right? Like they might just say I think you know, I think they're open. I, I'm I might be wrong, but I feel like I feel like it's lot is not predetermined and the Democrats like Ryan are making the wrong the wrong choice in doubling down on what they feel to be. Because I think Ryan deep down is just a racist, racist guy. <clears throat> and he just can't be convinced otherwise. And that's just like the disturbing part that he's part of this party party that we're kind of for, forced to support. You know, he's like and he's just like he just can't be convinced because he's like Right, it's just like right. racist. Sorry, yeah. I'm losing my voice. No, I, I mean, I don't think, I don't actually disagree with anything you just said. I did um, think when I was watching the ad, because at, at some point, well, first of all, he uses all these workers like mercilessly as props in a very peculiar way, and they seem like fake people. But he also puts on a workers first t-shirt in the middle of the ad, which I found very funny. But I also had this reaction of like, I wish a Democrat would make an ad like this, like without the sinophobia, but just saying like, we are a workers party. Like we Jesse, are a party of labor and you Jesse know, Jackson. <laughs> Jay's favorite go to. Jesse Jackson. Yeah. Was. Kind of. He was. Yeah. We've had moments where there are, you know, and I feel like Bernie has sometimes has, but having a democratic, we don't have a party that will say, yes, we will be a party of workers. Whatever. I know that Adolf talked to you a little bit yeah. Andy, about like we have some the right. There's some right wing but... people who say that, right? But right, that's um, another thing. We're yeah. like, yeah, I don't know. But... It's like the Democrats are like playing catch up to yeah. Tucker Carlson and Trump. You know, and it's like, right. this, this is weird. So they've co opted the labor. Right. Yeah, I mean, what they're saying is make know? America great again, basically. <laughs> right. so he's gonna put on a red cap that says "We are workers." <laughs> yeah. uh, no, I mean he's doing a coal miners bit, right? Basically. <laughs> like Trump did. Um, basically, yeah. Yeah. No, I agree. I don't know. Now, will America ever wake up and say, "Look, you know, the, the world economy is different"? I don't think so because I think that the nostalgia over like the mm. you know the great times of American industry and like you I know see. GM and everything like that are just so powerful. Like they're the foundational myths that we were fed as children that and the supreme court obviously you know (laughs) (laughs) those are the two (laughs) yeah it was basically the supreme court and like you know gm was like you know amazing um those are the two i you know at least in terms of the in terms of like the united states economy of course that is right like you know middle class house car all this sort of stuff all that is based on a type of like sort of uh geographically distributed industry where you could like go to the high school and marry your high school sweetheart and go work in the factory after you do like an associate's degree and then move yourself up and then you're like a middle management right 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 so like they they that that's hard to get away from and so um now i don't think it's hard to get away from in san francisco i think yeah i think it's Um, fading i mean logically obviously right every year i think in ohio maybe it's hard it might be hard. I don't know. I, I just kind of feel like the Democrats um, are just uncreative. Um, well, that's true. And are just Lord. deep down racist. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, there's a, there's, there's a lot of that. I don't know. It's uh, I'm concerned about it, though. Like, uh, about the... I'm concerned about the rise of xenophobia and what yeah. it means for us chinks here in America. No, for sure. You know, it would just be good to like build on that and expand it. You know, right, so. right, right. Yeah. Um, what is the yeah analysis? Yeah. 
Okay. Um, all right. Andy, thank you for trooping through <laughs> this. Sorry, guys. I coughed yeah. a lot. You sound... You're like Terrible. a little bit too hoarse to sound cool right now. <laughs> I sound like Doc Rivers, like, you know? If you're like 10% less hoarse, you would sound really cool, you know? But you're 10% too hoarse, I think. It's just like, you know, but it's fine. It's very concerning. You know? like concerning how I sound. Yeah. You gutted through it, you know? Like you're like Tiger Woods at the Masters, like, you know, like going through pain, moments of brilliance. And then a lot of just like, man, he's really gutting through this, you know, and I respect that. Did you watch any of the Masters? Neither of no. you care about sports. No. So I watched I'm it. I'm trying. I think it was, I saw he was. Bomani Jones show. Oh, yeah. Was, was it good? <laughs> I was so. Uh, I like what? it. Oh, yeah. I like Bomani's show. I think Game it's great. Game theory. Yeah. But um, the Masters was the first day. I was a mess of emotions, you know, watching Tiger what, go through it. Do you identify with Is Tiger? Is this recent? I love Tiger. What? Who doesn't like Tiger? It's the best. I'm like neutral. I don't know. Oh, yeah, really? also oh neutral. my god, I love Tiger. Is this recent? It just happened yeah, this on weekend. Okay. I saw it on the yeah, TV. and then Saturday I was last night I was in an even bigger mess because the Korean zombie just got annihilated. Do you know this guy, Tammy? Korean zombie. This is a UFC thing. You don't know him? Yeah, he's a UFC fighter from Korea. Oh. Um, he's he's like the people's champion. Like he's like beloved by all UFC fans, even wow. the racist ones. Because he like is like, hey, he's like kind of. I can't think of a good analogy except that he like, and this sounds racist, but if you are a fight fan, you will know that this is the highest camp compliment. He fights like a Mexican, you know, like, and so like, like you know, like the in boxing, for example, the reason why Mexican mean? fighters, the reason why Mexican fight, I better not get canceled for this because anyone who knows boxing or fighting at all understands what I'm saying here, right? And it's not right. It's that. There is a style of fighting that is associated with Mexican fighters for good reason, where they will like, they'll just stand there and like, you can hit them as many times (laughs) as you want and they'll keep coming, right? Like they're tough. Oh, that's the zombie thing? Right, right. So Korean zombie has had a very long career and actually it's quite tragic because he was really sort of coming up and doing well and then he had to do his military service, you know? Mm. And so he had his prime taken away from him. Mm. But in UFC, he's very popular because he fights like that. You know, like he gives he he take he takes a ton <laughs> of shots. He gives a ton of shots. He wins in dramatic fashion. He's like one of the most popular UFC fighters. And you know, like this is the one thing I would say. I don't I don't need to ramble on about this, but like you know, MMA is really interesting in that. Like I would say that M, like the reason why I like it so much, or one of the reasons I like it so much, is because I actually think it's the most like in a strange way woke sport you know which is like makes no sense because you yeah know. What, but what like you mean like that? because i because like the fighters are from all around the world you know they're from everywhere they're from all these different countries like uh the women get huge billing in these fights you know mm-hmm. in a way that is not true of any other sport and then like if you can fight and you can you know like and you show like a lot of heart then like actually doesn't really matter i don't think like what your background is like the fans will really like you you know and so korean zombie was like the proof of this in a lot of ways because here's this guy he doesn't speak any english you know he's from korea he's uh and he's like doing these fights and he's becoming wildly popular right and uh yesterday was his like big shot at the title you know like after years of sort of being like you know this like sort of exciting action fighter and he just got murked, you know, like he got crushed to the point where I like, you know, like sometimes in these fights, you're like wondering, like, 
they have to stop because I think he might die. He like got to that point. And then he like had this very sad um, speech at the end and all the, you know, it was too bad, but he's a huge celebrity in Korea. Like the BTS concert, they were doing, they were like shouting him out at the BTS concert the night before and stuff like that. So I think he'll be Was he undefeated before that? No, 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 no. That, well, that's why, because he like that's why he's popular because he'll lose too, you know, and then he'll come back. But um, it's very hard to be undefeated in UFC. But um, he he lost, so then I was you know emotional I can't about that. This th- it's legal, right? It just seems so violent. It's I know that's incredibly violent. naive, but it just seems so freakish. I don't know. Violent. It's very violent, but it's also you know. It's like very emotional and yeah. um, the fighters don't make any money, which is like a travesty, oh right? And then you have these guys who are like, have devoted their entire life to martial arts and stuff and, and different forms of, and then they're just in there and like, there's not like a rich kid among them, you know? So it's very emotional, you know? It's like very, uh, it's great theater. So I enjoy it despite the fact that sometimes my stomach turns from the violence of it. Like last night I was like, I don't think I can watch this, but I watch it anyway. Anyway. Okay, I'll look up this Korean zombie. Shout out to the Korean zombie, you know? Um, We love you, even though two of us don't know who you are. (laughs) I speak for the group in this instance. We love you, zombie. Get better. You know, um, it's oh. okay if you reti- please retire. You know, yeah. you don't need to come back. He's 35, too. So he's oh, my gosh. Old. Anyway, okay. That's a good way to end our show. Thank you for listening to the show. You can always uh, support us on Substack at goodbye.substack.com. For $5, you'll get access into our Discord server. You can tweet at us at, at TTSGPod, or you can email at us at time to say at gmail.com. Um, all right, good. Good episode. Talk to you guys soon. Bye. Bye. Sunavi pe mari che io lo so no 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 nessuno no più it's time to say goodbye